Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to join with those who are tuning in on Facebook or YouTube in these unique days where we are scattered and worshiping together in different places, but we're grateful for the opportunity to do that. Um, again, just thank you to uh, A.J. Graves and his team to just get us up to speed uh, with the live stream, and I know they've been constantly working out uh, different uh, small things and hope that your experience at home is, uh, is edifying. But would we all join in opening up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? If you're here and want to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's on page 1021. But before we get into our passage, coming off of John's uh, congregational prayer there, I want to provide a little teaser to a big update for us here at Grace Church. Um, after a search process that began over six months ago, after Pastor Jeff announced his intention to retire in June of this year, uh, we have, this past week, extended an offer to a new pastor to come join the staff here at Grace, and that offer was accepted on Friday night. And... You're going to be mad at me because I'm not going to give you that much detail this morning, but he will start on December 1st, and in the next couple of days, a video will be going out to um, announce and introduce him to the church, and the reason is that we want the opportunity to kind of walk you through what's this process been like for us over the last six months with the advisory committee and the elder board and um, kind of just what the next steps and opportunities are going to be for uh, you to interact with him over the next two months as he, Lord willing, finishes up at his current church and then comes and joins us in December with his family. So I know that's very risky to just give that without more details, but my, a little teaser, just a little teaser, build some anticipation, uh, but needless to say, um, we are so excited about this next chapter of ministry at Grace Church, and, and while acknowledging that this year has been really difficult uh, for not only uh, us as a church and not being able to gather in the ways that we want to, but, um, but also just personally, I know that weight that still very much sits on many of just not knowing what the future is going to hold, but in terms of just our ministry, our staff, um, what God has been doing and growing us in this time, um, not only with now this news of a new associate, but Francis Park starting um, in July with youth ministry, and what, um, how just a unique time that is for him to have to start in this, and yet how great of a job he is doing. He is piling in a van with masks on and bringing the teens to the beach today. He's doing great, all right? He's, he's doing uh, really a phenomenal job with them, and so we're just grateful, really grateful for what's coming for us. So, open your emails. If you've fallen off the rail of email opening from Grace Church, it's time to get back on because you're going to want to see this update for this week. But 1 John chapter 2, I want to start with a question. Um, what do you think of when you hear the word test? When we think about the word test, I think it conjures up all different kinds of emotions. And as I was thinking about this, I think there's a major difference based upon whether you were the one giving the test or taking the test. So just consider a few examples for me, uh, with me. Uh, we often think about school, and students hear that word in its immediate dread. You know, I know it was always like a Monday, a teacher said, there's going to be a test on Friday, like dark cloud over the whole week. Like, make the test on Thursdays, teachers, please. Like, just give us Friday for joy, all right, after the test. Just my little two cents there. Or think about somebody at a doctor 
where a doctor comes in and says, we're going to have to do a blood test. Our six-year-old son, Caden, he, um, he sees a geneticist ever since he was born, and so now he has an annual appointment uh, with this geneticist that includes a blood test. And we've gotten to the point where we can never tell him about the appointment until we get in the car, because he, he just crumples when he hears about he's got to go see this doctor because he knows he's got to go get his blood test. So maybe like you, uh, you're stressed of having to give blood, the needle, the arm, the whole thing, or more seriously, the angst of what's that blood test going to reveal? There's a member of our church who's actually here this morning, so I'm risking by getting this right, but who, he works for the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, travels around to different work sites to test the ground to ensure that companies are not polluting the ground. And so if you're a project manager, project manager of one of these companies, angst-filled moment when the crew from the EPA shows up to test the ground. The ones taking the test, generally the word is dread. But now consider the perspective of those same things for the people giving the tests. A good teacher gives a test, not in hopes of failing their students, but to help them grow, to help them learn, and reveal to them what they have learned. A good doctor or nurse draws blood, not for the purpose of harming them, but to heal them by either revealing good results or even in the case of negative results, to then get them into a place of proper treatment. And even that crew from the EPA does tests not in hopes to give out these massive fines to companies, but to ensure the ground is clean, not only for their work site, but also for the community that they're working in. So if you had to boil down, why do people give tests? What word would you give? I think the word is assurance. Assurance that someone has learned. Assurance that they're healthy or can be with the proper treatment. Assurance that a company is following all the protocols. Well, this morning, as we continue in our sermon series in the book of 1 John, we're going to talk about assurance. I talked a little bit about this in the opening week of how it's a major theme, it's a major reason why John wrote this letter in the first place. And then over the last couple of weeks, if you've joined us, we've seen John walk this tightrope. Remember seeing him on this tightrope when he discusses sin and forgiveness And he says these kind of things that need to be taken together, Um, how those who are truly saved do not walk in darkness. But at the same time, if those who say they don't struggle with sin, they're liars. So if you're saved, you don't walk in darkness. But we all still struggle with the presence of sin. And so after you kind of take those things together, he's walking the tightrope, trying to be very nuanced in his discussion. A question might emerge from those reading, both at the time and now. And the question is this. Well, then how do I know if I'm saved? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever been asked that question by someone else? How do I know if I'm saved? Have you asked that question about your kids or about your parents or friends? Can we know? Can we know? John thinks we can. And the rest of chapter 2, John is going to give two tests to the church that are going to help answer that question. The first of which we're going to dig into this morning, and that is the test of obedience. And as a good elder in the church, just like a good teacher in a school, this test 
is given for the hope of assurance of faith. Can we really know if we're Christians? Can we actually have assurance of faith? That's what we're after this morning. So join with me. Um, Last week, we did two verses. This week, big jump, four verses, all right? 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All right, here's the simple yet vital message outline for the sermon if you're taking notes. Number one, you can know God. Number two, you can know that you know God. And number three, obedience is the test of knowing God. That's what we're going to dig into this morning. So first, number one, you can know God. A couple weeks ago, again, if you were with us, we saw John repeat this phrase in chapter 1. And the phrase was, if we say. Do you remember that? He would go, if we say so-and-so, then we are proven to be liars or make God to be a liar. He was exposing hypocrisy in the church with that phrase. And now, within these verses in chapter 2, you might have noticed the repeated phrase, by this we know. Chapter 1, if we say. Chapter 2, by this we know. It's a phrase of assurance. It's the title of the sermon. And it begins here with verse 3. But we won't really understand or experience assurance unless we are clear on what John means by the word know. Whenever the New Testament talks about knowing God, whether John or other New Testament authors, they are not merely referring to a mental assent to true facts. But rather, knowing God in the Bible is a knowledge of that truth that leads to a love for God. That leads to an affection. That leads to a personal relationship by His grace through faith. It's it's knowing in the mind and being stirred in the heart. And we know that we cannot know God without His first initiating act of knowing us. Amen? Like his act of revealing himself, of sending his one and only son to take on flesh and dwell amongst us, then we have a God who reveals himself, who initiates knowing us, giving us an opportunity to know him. It's a transcendent God who's created all things from eternity past, who has come near, and he made a way. And it's a knowledge that can transform your life. And that's not an understatement, right? We always say, this is going to transform your life. This will change everything. No, this, knowing God, will literally change everything. Probably the only thing in this world that is deemed like worthy of that kind of commercial. This will change your life. That's why our vision statement at Grace during this time of reset for our church is simply but powerfully glorifying God by making disciples who know Jesus and make him known. The Bible kind of know. It's the massive difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. I think one of the most tragic things we have in our churches are people who mistakenly think that because they know about Jesus, that that means they know Jesus. 
Let me illustrate it this way. Um, so this past summer, like many others, I am sure, Rochelle and I were excited to hear that the Broadway play Hamilton was going to be put on Disney+. Plus. Anyone else watch Hamilton, either on Broadway or Disney+. Plus? All right, hands are kind of getting up there. I'd say about 80%. I got a double hand in the back. Amen. Um, so Rochelle and I never saw it on Broadway, okay? Just not in that tax bracket. You know what I'm saying? Like, we just were not there for that. But this was a pleasant surprise for us. It's coming to us. We got Disney Plus whenever we did for our kids, and now it's for us. And it ended up being the perfect play for Rochelle and I because it combines our two favorite things. I love history. Rochelle loves Broadway. Thank you very much, Hamilton, for bringing us together. And while watching it, Rochelle made the comment a couple times throughout. She said, now, I could really get into history if it was always taught like this. And I know there are a couple things that were maybe a little questionable in terms of historical accuracy, but I'm pretty sure in general it was a very much accurate telling of the life of Alexander Hamilton. You find out he was born in the Caribbean. He immigrated to the colonies as a teenager. He rose in the ranks of the Continental Army. He served in Congress. He was then George Washington's cabinet, within his cabinet. And eventually he died after a duel with Aaron Burr. Sorry for the spoiler. Aaron Burr, who, fun fact, was the grandson of Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards. Has nothing to do with this, just want to tell you that. But you can watch Hamilton, and you can know a whole lot about Hamilton and that whole time period that you might have never known or you learned a long time ago and you forgot. But it won't change your life. It won't cause your heart to stir to worship him. It won't usher in a personal relationship with Alexander Hamilton. That's not the kind of knowledge that John is talking about or the rest of the New Testament writers when they say, you can know God. Because when they say that, he says you can know him in a way where you love him. A knowledge that transforms. A knowledge that shapes your thinking, our doing. It makes us want to make God the center of who we are. The most stunning, unpredictable, nearly unbelievable news in this world is that there's a God and you can know him. Not because we're so smart or lucky or observant, but because this God, who again created all things and sovereignly rules over all things for his glory, has also chosen to reveal himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ and his written word. And it's interesting, if you were to ask people, especially people who are not believers, hey, is it possible to know God? It's really not a given that people believe that. You might think, I'm sitting in church, outline point number one, I got this down, you can know God, I got it. But most people don't believe this. They may say, God is real in some transcendent sense, but we're too finite to actually understand him. It's, it's too out there for us. It's, it's naive. It's ignorant to think that we can actually know God. And that sounds humble on the surface, doesn't it? That might sound even appealing to you. Like, yeah, can we actually, actually think we can know him in that way? But don't fall for that bait. All they're saying when they say that is that they know God cannot be known. And it collapses upon itself. It's as narrow of a statement as a Christian saying you can know God or an atheist saying you cannot know God. 
But we know that you can know God. And this same John wrote in his gospel famously that this God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this God doesn't exist in a Broadway play with catchy lyrics. He's as, as alive today as he ever will be. And you can really know him through repentance and faith. So the more biblical question is not, am I saved? But rather, do I know him? Do I know him? That's number one. Number two, you can know that you know God. Hang with me here, right? There's a difference between having salvation and then being assured of that salvation that you have. And I think this is a question that many believers struggle with, and albeit for different reasons. But, there's, but doubt is a very real thing. For um, A lot of doubt is a reality for some believers, and some doubt is a reality for all believers. You following? But it can be crippling at times. And understandably so, because if we truly believe what we came to believe, then our eternal destiny hangs on that question. Do I know him? Assurance impacts our lives in any number of ways throughout our life, even non-spiritual things. So let's get very personal and relevant to 2020. Think about how many times over the last six to seven months, I don't even know how long it's been anymore, you've asked yourself, do I have COVID? Whether you experience one or more of the symptoms, I remember back in April, kind of peak time of lockdown and fear. There's still a lot of fear and unknown out there today, but even then it seemed like there was just so much unknown. And for someone who I don't think tends to be overdramatic, I'd have that moment where you get that tickle in your throat, or the, I, I would cough when I lay down in bed, and i go, Rochelle, I think I have it. <laughs> and not even trying to be funny. Or somebody told you, hey, somebody you've been in contact with has it. Or you've been to a state on the banned list, the infamous banned list of New Jersey, and you're wondering, am I dirty? Did I bring it home with me? In those moments, what do you want to know? You want to know if you know. Do I have COVID? And so you get a test, speaking of tests, to give you assurance that either you don't have it, or if you do, and I know some of you have, I know at least probably 12 families plus in our church that have had it in some way. You want to know, what do I need to do to get better? And even more importantly, what do I got to do to make sure I don't give it to someone else? And we've, we know, even now, COVID is not something you want to be wrong about. So how much more important is the assurance of eternal salvation? How much more will our lives be impacted if we go on living without knowing. You see, an assurance of salvation is not the determinant of your salvation because it's possible to know God and not think you do, not have that assurance. But assurance does impact the way you're going to live your life on a daily basis. Uh, Kent Hughes said the living the Christian life without assurance is like driving a car with the e-brake on. You can do it, 
but it'll be much smoother and effective ride if you turn it off, like it was designed to run. Likewise, brothers and sisters, God has designed it so that you can know if you know him. This is why John is writing this letter. He's going to come back to this again and again. This is not the last time we're going to see it. And he wants us to provide a self-test that will give assurance because a Christian with assurance will make for a much more effective and impactful life that first and foremost will bring glory to God and serve as a witness in this world. You know, this is one of the major differences between Protestant and Catholic theology. Many of our church have grown up, grew up in the Catholic church. Many of you in your families are still very much involved in the Catholic church. And it's a question I get all the time. Like, I know there's a difference, but what's really the difference? And there are a few major differences. There's a lot more similarities than differences, but there's a few major differences. One of which is assurance of faith. I want to read a quote. I think we're going to have it on the screen from Greg Allison. He wrote a really helpful book called Roman Catholic Theology and Practice from an Evangelical Perspective. He writes this, Tragically, Catholic theology denies that the faithful can possess such confidence because it maintains that salvation can be forfeited and is indeed lost when mortal sin is committed. But this position does not accord with Scripture, which assures genuine believers that the Holy Spirit both seals them for the day of redemption and provides certainty that they belong to God in Christ forever. Here's what I want us to know. This is not just a theological difference. Because a lack of assurance will leave you in a constant state of uncertainty, of fear, of dread, It'll be like driving on the highway with your e-brake on. And John is writing this letter so that we can know that we know God. And so at this point, I do just want to pause in all seriousness and just ask, do you know him? And then secondly, do you know that you know him? And if at this point you're thinking, man, I want to. Yeah, of course, I want to, but how? I don't know how. That's why John's going to give us two tests. We'll cover the first one this week, the second one next week. And for this morning will be our third point. Obedience is the test of knowing God. I want to read these verses again. After thinking about what we've thought about, covering what we cover, I want to just read them again. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Every believer, whether you have just become a believer, you've been, uh, by God's grace, in the faith for decades and decades, every believer should understand this distinction. Listen closely. We are saved not by good works, but for good works. Let me say it again. We are saved not by good works, 
but for good works. Just like a test for the coronavirus exposes whether you already have it, it doesn't tell you whether you will get it someday. Likewise, this test in 1 John of obedience is is revealing what is already true in us, not what might be true someday. Does that make sense? So a natural next question would be, okay, well then what does John mean by commandments? If we were to keep his commandments, what are the commandments? Is there a list somewhere? Give me a list. Give me an answer key. Let me just rate it and see, like, what's the percentage here? Is this 80% passing rate? Like, what are we talking about When Jesus was approached by a lawyer who was trying to trip him up in Matthew chapter 22, the lawyer asked with not good intentions, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? It's the greatest one. Jesus knows his motives, knows his intention, but he answers them. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great commandment. And first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Listen, all of God's word is inspired. And all of Jesus' words are especially worthy of us paying attention to. But if I could be so bold, this might be one of the most important lines that Jesus spoke that's in our Bible. Because John will later say, obedience to these commandments will answer the question, are you in him? Do you know him? So when John says we have assurance by keeping his commandments, I think he has the totality of Jesus' teaching in mind, which is not this long list of things that you got to do and make sure you hit 80% of them, but it's a living out of what Jesus called the great commandment, that all other commandments rest upon. Love God and love your neighbor. And we're going to dig more into the test of love next week, which will be the second test. But we even see here that knowing God and obeying God and loving God are all distinct but unbelievably connected. Danny Aiken puts it this way, to know God is to love God, and to love God is to obey God. And in this way, we see from Jesus' words and John pointing back to that, that obedience is not just outward behavior. It's not we often think obedience is just your outward behavior, but rather it's how your behavior is an indicator of your inward affection and love. It's outward conduct that reveals inward character. And here is where John, I think, more than any other place, is shown to be really inspired by the Holy Spirit at this point as he's writing to the church. Because you know what? I can sense in my own heart. I'd imagine in your own hearts at this point you're going, this is actually leading to a little bit more anxiety than it is assurance. Because if we're supposed to find assurance in our obedience, what about the times we disobey? How much obedience is enough obedience? We are far from perfect. 
We disobey the command to love God and love neighbor on a daily basis. That's John prayed in our confession this morning. Sometimes we do it knowingly. Sometimes we do it unknowingly. We do things we shouldn't. We don't do things we should individually as a church. If that's my test, man, I don't know if I'm feeling assurance of anything. I think I'm feeling more angst. And this is why we preach through books of the Bible. This is why we don't take these verses and we divorce them from the verses that we saw in the weeks prior. Do you remember the last two weeks? When John said, if we sin, Christ is faithful and just to forgive. And he does so as our advocate. My favorite line from John Bunyan's 1678 classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's the second most printed and read book in the history of the world after the Bible. But there's a line in there when the main character, who's named Christian, is on the road, and he's accused by another man named Apollyon, and Apollyon confronts Christian and reminds him of all his shortcomings and his failures. And Christian says this, Apollyon, all this is true, and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Translation, brother, I am way worse than you even know, but I am more loved than you can ever fathom by the one who is merciful. And John indicates this with present tense. This is where literary uh, devices matter. It's present tense language. He says, if we keep, not if we kept. Whoever keeps his word, present tense. Verse 6, whoever abides in him ought to walk, not walked. Meaning this, it's a journey and the Christian life is about progress, not perfection. Please, say it with me. Progress, not perfection. Look to your socially distant neighbor and say, progress, not perfection. John Calvin puts it this way. He does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law keeps his commandments, but those who strive to form obedience to God. One more time, say it with me. Strive, not satisfy. Look to your neighbor. Strive, not satisfy. We're talking about a trajectory here. We're talking about a journey that we are on. And it's an inner love for God that increasingly leads to a growing obedience to God. And it won't be perfect. But it begins with a desire. When you think about obedience, in the Bible, first think about desire, not outward conduct. Do you desire to obey God's commandments? To live according to His Word? To submit to His design for your life, as we sang this morning, to surrender? Not just in a general way, like, yeah, it would be great, and I should live according to God's word. But I'm talking specific, brothers, sisters. I'm talking intentional. Do you care to know and follow God's design for your sexuality? To obey him with your money, 
with your worship, with the way you speak, with the way you type and post on social media, on your internet history that no one else sees, on your Netflix account? Is there a specific and intentional desire to live according to God's design for your life? It won't be perfect, but what I want to say lovingly is if you can say, I don't really have that desire. I know the facts, what I should do, but I don't have that desire. I'm just, I'm concerned for you, and I say that out of love. That if there's no desire, something's off there. We have to, we have to confront that. And John will move from the negative to the positive. Remember, we always see this. He always contrasts one verse to the next. In verse 4, he says, If you say you know him but have no desire to obey him, you show yourself to be a liar. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And when John says there, whoever keeps his word, the love of God perfected, he's not saying God's love gets perfected because God's love was never broken. He means our love for God in that context. Our love for God is made evident by obedience. John Stott's commentary on 1 John, I think it was written in the 50s, found it tucked away in our church library. It's been a goldmine for me in this series. He wrote here, quote, True love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. We can say all the right things when somebody asks us. We can make all our words sound really good in expressing our love for God. But if we're not seeking to obey his commandments, they're worthless. Let me put it this way. If I often talked in sermons of how much I loved Rochelle, and I used all the words that would make you tear up in the pew, trigger all the emotions. Does that describe my affection for her, my gratitude for her, how amazing our marriage is? And then, after hearing this often over years, you get lunch with Rochelle, and she tells you, you know, he's rarely home. He's always in the office. He's always seeing other people, pastoring other people. Never seen him with our family. He and I haven't gone out together in years. He barely talks to me. We've had no physical contact in the last time I can remember. What would that make you think? The next Sunday, I got up and started wax poetic talking about my marriage with Rochelle. Would you hear it differently that time? Would it change anything for you? That's what John is saying. True love... For God is expressed in action. It's horrifying to hear people talk all about God and how important He is in their life, and they have little to no regard to obey any of His commands. This is why John says obedience is the first test of knowing God. And not just a matter of performance, not just a matter of resisting sinful action, but it's a desire for God over the long term. It's an ever-growing desire for obedience that the longer you're a believer, you will, in time, and by the Spirit's power within you, grow in faithfulness and decrease in sinfulness. You won't ever get there. It'll always be slower than you think. 
But in time, you should be able to see, and those around you should be able to see, a growing desire and fruit of obedience, a trajectory of growth. And so we're going to close with this. There's three reasons why people do what they do. They either have to, they need to, or they want to. A woman who is caught up in the modern sex slave industry does what she does because she has to. She's a slave. An employee sometimes does things that work because he or she needs to in order to keep their job and provide for their family. But for the maturing believer in Christ, the motive should not be, I have to obey, or even I need to obey, but rather, I want to. And we're not always there. I know that. But we're on the road. We're increasing there. I want to. Because we love the authority that God has over our lives. We love that he lays out the commands of what we should do because this authority is for his glory and it's been expressed in his love for us. And our desire to walk in that provides us a joy of assurance of salvation. And so if you're here this morning and you are really struggling with this and internalizing this and full of angst in this, it's, it's, there, there, there's an opportunity to focus our minds and hearts. There's an opportunity before we close this morning to just say, Lord, I want to have this assurance. And I know it's not like flipping a switch, but I do know that it begins with a commitment or a recommitment to him as your Lord and Savior, to commit to follow him to repent of our sin and trust in him and surrender to him and walk the path that he has walked. And knowing then that God will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's not about your obedience that gets you saved, but he saves you into obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how even it can be complex at times, how there is a stunning simplicity that your spirit reveals to us. We thank you that you are the creator of all things, who has created all things for your glory, and yet you have initiated knowing us so that we can know you. And Father, we thank you even beyond that, that we can know that we know you. And so, Father, for anybody listening and watching right now or anybody here with this this morning, Lord, I pray that if they do not know you, that your spirit would just come upon them. Lord, reveal this to them and, and, and stir them with that desire to say, I don't have to go out and perform. I don't have to figure this out on my own. I simply need to surrender, to repent of choosing my glory over your glory, to repent of rebelling against your name, and choosing to trust in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for that sin on the cross, who was raised from the grave to declare victory over evil and sin and death. And I pray, Lord, that with our eyes fixed upon you, for those who do trust in you, Lord, that we would grow in our trajectory, that we would grow in our desire to follow you, not because we have to, not because we need to, but by your grace and your spirit within us, we want to. We thank you, Lord. We thank you what you will do in and through us 
individually and as a church as we pursue you and give all the glory to your name. And it's your name, your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.